You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. This passage starts with the Pharisees asking a question. They say, hey, is the kingdom of God here? Or when will the kingdom of God be here? And Jesus simply replies, hey, it's, it's in the midst of you. And it sounds mysterious, but what Jesus is referring to is the kingdom of God is here because I, Jesus, am the king. The kingdom of God is not far away. It's not hidden. Instead, Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and he's brought this kingdom, proving it by doing things like healing 10 lepers, that he's authenticating his power. He's living out the Old Testament promises. The kingdom of God is here. And if you've been in a church a long time, the kingdom of God might mean something to you. But if you've not been in the church a long time, the kingdom of God was this idea in the Old Testament of looking forward to God's arrival, that one day God would come to this broken world and fix things. And in fixing things, he would bring people back to himself, that the kingdom of God in shorthand could just mean life with God again. And it's what every human heart wants deep down. They go about it in maybe wicked ways, twisted ways, broken ways. But deep down, we all long to be with our creator. That we would look up into the the father, the, the, the parent, the God we need, and be close to him. And what the Pharisees, they say, are there gonna be great global signs of this kingdom coming? Is it, are we gonna know? And Jesus is saying, the kingdom's already here. You don't need a bigger sign. What you need is faith to see me for who I am. And the Pharisees are learning a tough lesson, but a lesson we must all learn. That enrollment in the kingdom of God, enrollment into life with God is not guaranteed. Instead, our participation is a choice. These Pharisees must choose Jesus or they will never experience the kingdom of God. The same for us. And Jesus is calling them to believe what's right in front of them. He's like arm's length away. He's saying, it's in your midst. It's it's right here. But the question for us is, what are we to do since Jesus isn't right here? He isn't here in bodily form. He's not walking around and breathing. He didn't heal 10 lepers today outside. What are we to do if they're called to believe in what's right in front of you when there's not a Jesus right in front of us? And what Jesus points the disciples and thus our church to in verse 22 and beyond is he points everyone to something we would call, our culture would call the end of the world. He says, they must believe now in the Jesus they see. You must believe in my return. For the Christian, the end of the world, the center of that idea is the return of Christ. It's a hopeful thing instead of a fearful thing. It's something that we see and we wait for that Jesus says, hey, look to the end because I'm coming back. And while there's lots of misunderstanding and lots of uh, weird things and the end of time can be confusing, this passage wants to ground us in four big things about the return of Christ that give you real cause for hope, real cause for hope on Monday tomorrow. 
Real cause for hope for all the big things or possibly troubling things in 2024. Look with me at what it says. But before Jesus returns, first, Jesus will suffer and leave. Verse 22, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. or Do not go out or follow them. But first he, talking about himself, Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus knows his absence after his death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. He knows that will be hard on us. That's not lost on Jesus at all. We all long to see Jesus, and that's why shows like The Chosen are so popular. There's this desire to do anything to be a little closer to this reality of Jesus. It's why trips to Jerusalem and and tours like that are so dreamy that people save and save and want to go just to feel like they can be a little closer to this reality that they, they can't see. And Jesus tells them plainly, he must suffer. The rest, the beatings, the cross to come, they're not a mistake. They're not the plan messing up. They're not things going wrong, but that's what's to come. That the cross is the rescue plan to save us from sin, to pay our penalty on our behalf. And the Lord says, and many will never receive him. That Jesus will be rejected by this generation, but that can also mean that this age of man, this whole race of man will reject him. That it is not a guarantee that all people will follow him. And that doesn't mean God has failed. It doesn't mean the church has failed. It doesn't mean Jesus' plan is broken, but rather, again, enrollment in the kingdom of God is not guaranteed. But participation in the kingdom of God is a choice. And that our hunger to be with Jesus should be redirected towards the end, towards the return of the great king. As much as we're nostalgic, oh, if only I was there as a disciple, Jesus says your hope must be pointed towards the end. That you must look forward because God's story isn't over. Jesus is working through his church, the church globally, but also the church locally. And in fact, the best is yet to come. So the Lord warns us, don't be deceived by rumors. Don't be deceived by rumors. Life is hard. Waiting is hard. Waiting for anything's hard. Nothing like getting impatient when the internet doesn't work quick. I mean, it it reveals how how little we really are when your internet, like, I can't believe it didn't connect instantly. But with a hard life, when waiting's hard, the desire for special inside information the desire for really conspiracies is attractive. Why? Because it makes you feel real important. Only you know the truth. Only you have the inside move, the inside information. And when you have the special truth or this hidden thing or or you figured it all out, it's attractive because you become the hero of the story. You're the one crusading against all culture, all the world or all the church or whoever that you have the inside move. That's how you're dealing with your waiting in this waiting and anxious and aching world. 
And Jesus knows this temptation, but Jesus also knows the wickedness of people who will make rumors about him. This is nothing new. Wicked people have claimed to know when the end will come, starting in that first century, all the way up to, I think there was a Mayan calendar not too pretty recently. There was Y2K. About every five years, someone comes up with, I know when the end will come, and they're wicked people. Why? Because Jesus says explicitly in Matthew 24 that no one knows the day or the hour. So as soon as anyone suggests that they know the day or the hour, they are denying Jesus explicitly. And they are not to be believed. It is but a rumor. There's also wicked people who gather people for doomsday groups. A lot of these have hit, become Netflix specials or Amazon Prime specials and documentaries. But the cost is real. People really lose their life in these doomsday groups like cults like David Koresh in Waco, Texas, Jim Jones in Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, and on and on and on. They're not a new phenomenon. Jesus warns against it. They're an attractive hook. I know how the end is, so we better live a certain way and pull out of this world, usually. Politicians use the end times rhetoric or speeches all the time. Have you ever noticed that every election of your life is the most consequential election of our lifetime? I ran out of fingers there. It always is. It doesn't matter. It's always the most consequential one. And as the debate heats up between red and blue or even within a primary, eventually it always boils down to, and if the other person wins, America's gone. The world is over. It always ends up in this same rumor mongering, really, to play to our deepest fears, to play to our deepest desires, to say everything's at stake unless you see me as a messiah. But the rumors are unnecessary. They only deceive, they only distract, because look at what Jesus says in verse 24 and beyond. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. Son of Man is this apocalyptical term that Jesus refers to himself. It's from the book of Daniel, and he loves to use it. Verse 27, and like Noah, the flood came and destroyed them all. And like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, so will it be on the day the Son of Man is revealed. We learn a second thing. When Jesus returns, it will be a global spectacle. No one will miss it. There won't be a moment where someone needs to go, look over here, or come join my weird cult in the desert. That will be unnecessary. When the Lord returns, no one will miss a global lightning storm, not raining down, but a cross that lights up every corner of the globe, that puts every 4th of July to great shame, it will be a moment no one's gonna miss. So don't be deceived, church. The sky will rip open, the Lord will descend. It will be like Noah's flood. It's a global event. It's an innocent global event of both salvation and judgment. It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. It's so abrupt and so complete that no one will have any doubt of what's happening. It won't be like, you know, I don't know what's going on today. The weather's crazy. It will be so shocking that everyone's aware. But yet, while other scriptures mention some signs, 
Like you can look at Matthew 24, Matthew 25. It's a parallel to this account. They give some signs of uh, the end times, the return of Christ. Jesus here in Luke actually just emphasizes the ordinariness of it all. Verse 26, listen to what it says. It says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and until the day when Noah entered the ark. Up to the day, people were making plans and doing them. The flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was with the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, starting businesses, planting and building. Here's the truth. Jesus's return will be like any other day. Trying to read all the signs or know this, that's not what the Lord has called us to. There's an ordinariness that life will be continuing and then abruptly it will be different. It could very much be today. It could very much be in 2,000 years. I have no idea. I want to obey the scriptures. The timing is uncertain, but the return of Jesus is certain. Just like people doubted God would ever send his Messiah, and there was 400 years from the last book of the Old Testament to the coming of Christ, and people's hopes waned, people tried to reinterpret the Old Testament, and tried to move their hopes, some held on faithfully waiting for a Messiah. Just like now, when people's faith wanes, their hope goes to other things. But the return of Jesus is certain. Just like his first arrival, he will come again in this second advent. And our obsession with when is just misplaced. Our faith must be rooted in the who is returning. The when doesn't really matter. It's going to happen. And while the return is untimable, we must know it is both sudden and absolute. In a way that few things are just so absolute. You know, there's a deadline for something, but if you know someone, you can like get around the deadline. You know, and, and, and so many things in life, you, there's like a makeup test or, or you get a do-over. This won't be like that. It'll be sudden and absolute. So sudden that there will be no time to change. There'll be no time to reconsider. There'll be no time to repent and turn to the Lord. None of that will be possible. Instead, Jesus will just be here. Look at verse 31. It says, on that day, let no one who's on a housetop with his goods in his house, not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Don't look back. Don't gather your things for the trip. Don't try to save anything. It's just gonna be a moment where God is actually there and it's gonna happen suddenly. I tell you that in the night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. And when the Lord comes, he's gonna unite his people to himself. That's what it means by taken. That people, his church, those who believe in him, will be united to Christ. And some would call this, and in theology call it the rapture. This taking of the church to himself. And I want to point us to the most famous passage on this idea. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 19. And I want to read it 
but I want to read it for a couple reasons. Notice the emphasis in this passage. It's not the emphasis of maybe you've seen in a movie. It's not the emphasis you may have read in a book. Notice what the Bible says, this fantastical Marvel movie-feeling event. Notice what the Bible actually says in its emphasis. Look, Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. That's quite a statement. Right in line with what's saying here in Luke, that the Lord is descending, the skies are opening up. The Lord himself will come out of heaven with a loud command in the voice of the archangel with the trumpet call of God. So there will be, once again, an announcement you will not miss. It is louder than homeroom in high school. This is an announcement. The dead in Christ will rise first. So it's not just the living who will be taken, but the dead. It is saying that people will rise from the dead to meet the Lord first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That is a fantastic, mind-blowing, difficult to even think, like, how does that even work? I don't know. He's God. If someone's going to make it work, it's him. When the Lord comes, no one will miss it, and God will gather all of his saints from long dead to newly born, whatever it is, he will gather his people. Listen, so we will be with the Lord forever. The emphasis of the rapture, the emphasis of the end times has three big beats. The Lord is coming. You will be with him as his church and he will make all things new. If you emphasize other parts of it, you're kind of missing the point that the Lord is coming. You will be with him, and consequently, those who are not of the Lord will not, and that all things will be made new. And look what it says in verse 18. Instead of hiding this deep down in a book of theology somewhere or hiding it deep down and never talking about church or anything like that, verse 18 explicitly commands you and commands me to do what? Therefore, encourage... Oh. Can you pop on the screen for me real quick, Mr. Andy? Okay. Well, guys, you're going to have to trust me on this one. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This whole idea of being with the Lord forever, through his rapture, his taking, however that plays out, I, I don't even know. I mean, it's, it's an amazing sounding deal. We are to encourage each other with these words that we will always be with the Lord. Always. Not just the disciples when he lived in front of them. Not just by the spirit in the church, which is an amazing thing. But we will never have a moment we're not with the Lord forever and ever and ever. The world fears what will happen at the end of the world and what their fate might be. And you see a big manifestation of that fear in, uh, you know, prepper culture. Uh, I, grew, I grew up around people who did prepper culture. There's a whole industry selling powdered eggs uh, to people, you know, and gas masks and preparing and building subterranean homes and basements. There's a whole industry built over anxiety of the end. But the Lord is saying, 
you don't have to be anxious about the end or fearful about the end if you're a Christian, but rather Jesus' return should fill us with hope, not fear. Because the end of the world means the return of the king we desire most. And we will always be with the Lord. Now, Christians, we should care for the earth. This isn't a thing to say, hey, let the world burn, or I don't, I don't care about the future of the ecological future of our planet. I don't care about the ethical future of our planet. We should care about those things. We've been given a planet to steward from the first mentions of humans in the garden in Genesis 1-2. We should be thoughtful citizens of America and of the globe. We should avoid war where uh, possible. We should be good stewards of everything the Lord has entrusted you with. We should be advocates for peace and justice of all peoples. However, the end of our days and the end of all days should not be a fearful thing, but a hopeful one. The fact that the end will be sudden and that there won't be a countdown shouldn't dispirit us, but rather help us let go of some of the control in our lives. If the most important thing, the most fantastic thing, the best thing to ever happen in the return of Christ, you have no control over, you can kind of take a deep breath about some of your life, right? The biggest thing you have no control over So you can kind of take that deeper breath over your own life, that the Lord loves you and he'll be with you always. There's this invitation there to place our faith, to place our hope in Jesus, not ourselves and not in anyone else. The fourth thing, therefore, trust and obey Jesus wholeheartedly. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Using these Old Testament examples, it's lining up what a faithful response to Jesus in the end is. Noah listened to God. He built this gigantic ark. He did it obediently, and he and his family were saved from the coming judgment. Lot listened to God. He left the city. He saved himself and most of his family, escaping Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment. But Lot's wife, when told to run and not look back, Lot obeyed, but Lot's wife did not. And scripture tells us in Genesis 19 that Lot's wife looked back She disobeyed and was instantly turned into a pillar of salt. And sometimes we're kind of like tempted to believe uh, against these more fantastical stories. But I just want to encourage you, Jesus is quoting it specifically. And if the Lord says it happened, boy, it happened. He quotes Jonah too in the whale. So instead of finding a New Testament that undermines our old, it's the opposite. The New Testament believes the Old Testament wholeheartedly. Jesus believes the Old Testament wholeheartedly and quotes it in reference to himself and his return all the time. It should build us up in our faith when we read the fantastic, that he's a fantastic God who raptures people too. And what he's telling us here, using this example, her example, it's a negative example, that to follow Jesus is to leave your former life, a life that was bound for destruction, and follow Jesus with your whole heart. That the return of Christ 
is a reason to wholeheartedly give your life to the Lord. And it's the same thing Jesus has been saying over and over in Luke, that we cannot follow the world and follow Christ. That to look back on our life in the world and try to live two ways won't work. To live for the world's values and this following of Jesus, it won't work. And Jesus feels our tension here because living for Jesus still has a great deal of ordinariness. Everyone eats and sleeps and and works and has to take baths and, and has to do chores. And that's why this passage uses these examples. The two people in a bed, it's, it's a married couple that one is taken and one is left. Two women at work, one is taken, one is left. Same town, same job, same, probably same lunch, similar clothes. They're, they're likely friends. There's an ordinariness about life. However, while we have the same beats as everyone, you can be right beside people who have a very different Lord of their life right beside people who have a very different fate awaiting the end. That while our life may be ordinary, we can put our faith in God and do our life differently in many ways. But there is a sense that we don't have to do a fantastic thing to be eligible for God's salvation. We put our faith in him and in many ways continue with an ordinary life, but just under the leadership of Jesus instead of ourselves. To strive to live wholeheartedly for God is the response to Jesus who will always be with us. Don't look around to comparison. Don't look around or back at your former life and sins and wish you could go back. Don't lust after the world and the things of the world. Instead, start looking to his return as a place to put your hope and find your joy. Now, some of y'all are like, finally, Jesus, or finally, Justin is talking about the end times and are are very excited. Um, Others of y'all are like, I've never heard any of this. If there's a way he could stop talking about the end times, that'd be great. (laughs) And it's easy in a passage like this, in a sermon like this, to have a lot of head engagement And not a lot of hands, not a lot of what should we do for this certain thing that's in an uncertain when. So I want to carefully move us to some application to connect Sunday to your faith on Monday. And I think there's three big areas for you to consider as you think about and long for the return of Jesus. Hope in Christ means assurance perspective, and refinement. And there's an assurance of salvation, which from that Thessalonians passage, that we will always be with the Lord, that Jesus is the brother who came and found us. He's the brother who's with us now in spirit, and he's the Jesus who's coming back for us. He's the brother we've all always wanted. I mean, he's this amazing God. But in verse 37, how the passage ends, some scholars have called it the most confusing verse in Luke. I found another uh, scholar who offered 20 different valid explanations of what Jesus means. So very certain here. Um, But I think the Lord 
finishes the passage in 37, and I want to offer an explanation for it that I hope fills you with assurance as it does me. Verse 37 said, and they said to him, this is the disciples, where, Lord? As in, where are you going to return? Or even, where are we going? Or where's all this happening? And Jesus replies to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. They have no idea how long Jesus will be away. Jesus hasn't even died yet. He's not ascended yet. He's not resurrected in between those. And so one explanation for this is the word corpse here is just the word body. And same with vultures is the same word for eagles. And in the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah all have these promises of kind of this eagle-like deliverance of God's people. And so I'd offer an explanation of why is he ended like this is the disciples asked Jesus, asking, where will I be? Jesus is saying, where my body is, you will be eagles and redeemed around me. That wherever the Lord is, he will be with us always. That they don't need to find a geographic location. This is not a game of hide and seek. But rather, where this resurrected and returning body of Jesus is, God's people will be like eagles with him, playing on some of these Old Testament themes. Another take on, on this verse with the same meaning would be a little more crude, but like vultures on a dead body, so my church will be on me. <laughs> little crude, little hard to hear as we don't want to think about dead bodies or corpses. But if you think about roadkill and possums here in Alabama, the vultures aren't far behind. It's another way for our Lord to say, wherever I am, so you will be. You will not miss it. You will always be with me. And whether those uh, explanations are right or not, it still maintains that Jesus's return should bring you great assurance to stop doubting your salvation as if you're saving yourself and put all your hope in a Jesus who says, I'll be with you always and I'm coming. It is an amazing thing the day you step into a deep assurance, not on what you've done or even what you've said, but that I put my faith in the Lord and the Lord is doing the saving in my life. And I'll be with him always, no matter what comes at me in this year or any year. Second application is perspective. In 1997, a man named Richard Carlson wrote a best-selling book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And his point, it's like a little square book, um, his point is that, hey, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff in life. And that he was pointing out that a lot of our worry in life is over things that ultimately won't matter in the end, and that we have little control over. That so much of our frustration in life, what's causing us to sweat, is stuff we just don't have that much control over, and it may not matter. It feels like it matters a lot, but it won't. And for him, his approach was philosophical. How to, how to make it through a hard life. But for us, our approach can be theological. That if Jesus and his return are the main thing, we don't have to sweat the small stuff either. And in other words, we can be easy. We can let stuff go. We can move past even really hard things with a perspective that the main thing is yet to come. 
It doesn't make hard, hard things like grief and death uh, minimized. We still enter those realistically. We still enter those with our whole self. We still enter those with full emotion. But one day, the return of Jesus will be so much more enormously big in a way that's tough to comprehend, that it will put all things in place, that as much as maybe we get to live 100 years here, we're gonna live like billions with the Lord, and that's an underestimation. That there is a moment, that might not be the best thing to say to a friend who's grieving, but there is a moment that we come to a place that so no matter how big this thing in my life is now, one day, it won't be the whole story because it's not the whole story. The whole story ends with the Jesus who's coming. In 2 Corinthians 4, it tells us this, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As you move through the light and momentary troubles that Paul, I mean, the guy gets like stoned to death and shipwrecked and accused constantly. I mean, they did not feel light in the moment but eventually he had the perspective with the eternal weight of glory to say, even my worst days are relatively light. Jesus's return offers us perspective. And the last thing I wanna suggest is Jesus's return offers us refinement. That if we place our hope in Jesus's return, we must take our hope out of this world. One day, his glory will be the biggest story. So here's the thing. Imagine with me, if you took your ultimate hope out of your body for beauty or health or fitness, out of all your relationships, even your closest ones, family, kids, marriage, best friends. What if you took your ultimate hope out of things like your church, your physical home? your city, your job, even out of your dreams. Imagine the freedom you'd feel if you took your hope out of all those things and didn't demand they fulfill you. Because all those things are a part of a broken world. They can't fulfill you. But if you put all that same hope into Jesus's return, Imagine the freedom you'd feel to then love all those broken and beautiful things as they are. That your hope wasn't in hitting a certain body fat percentage. That your hope wasn't in that one day my marriage will be perfect. It won't be. That one day my hope wasn't in my kids obeying just right. That one day my hope wasn't in my church being perfect or my work being perfect or any of my dreams working out. When you take your hope out of those ultimate, out of those things as ultimate, suddenly you get to love them and commit to them because they're worthy and good, not because they're God and not because they hold all the hope in your life. If you can admit that, you're also free to admit your own imperfection and learn that you're worthy of Christ's return in love too. Church, I want to encourage you to exhale your hope in this world and inhale a hope in Christ. And in Romans 8, it talks about this very thing, both this groaning of the whole world for redemption, 
and the groaning of the church for redemption, right down to our body. I want to read this over us as we finish. And we, believers, the church, also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. It's just a foretaste. It may not be all satisfying all the time. It's a taste of a much greater meal. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Your sins got you down. Suffering from this broken world got you down. Join all the church of all time. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. That our brother Jesus actually is going to bring us home. Including new bodies he's promised us. Are you down about your body? Are you down about aging? Are you down about disease? Are you down about whatever it is? This isn't the only body you're ever going to have. It's going to be new. We were given this hope when we were saved. It's not reality yet. It's in cement with God. It's going to happen. That's why we can hope. It's not our reality. Sin and suffering is our reality. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Church, wait patiently and confidently in Jesus' return. Hoping in Jesus' return changes our life now.